You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, I am super glad that you are here this morning. We are continuing a series that we been, have been in since the beginning of January called Pursued. And really what the series is, is it's going to be one of the longer series that we've done. It's going to lead us into Easter, but it's broken up into four different parts, four major movements of the scriptures. So in the month of January, we spent a lot of time on this idea of creation and what was God's good intention. Right now, we're in the midst of studying the fall. Like What went wrong in God's story? How has sin kind of infected that story? Then the next section will be redemption, God's plan to redeem it all, and then restoration, what his ultimate vision for the world, for us, and for us glorifying him for eternity looks like. And so uh, we're in week two of the, the fall section, so we get to have another fun conversation about sin this morning. Uh, and if you were here last week, I have really good news for you. The snake is not here this week, and there will be no more snakes, at least uh, from my doing. I can't help if you bring a pet snake or something. I'm not going to stop you there. But the snake is gone. I did think about having an empty cage just sitting on the, on the stage this morning just to scare some people, but I think uh, that'd be rude. So anyways, uh, a couple years ago, I was in Dallas airport traveling, and it was a really busy travel day, and I had sat down for lunch and uh, there weren't a lot of tables around, so um, a guy serving in the army who had actually just recently gotten home for being stationed abroad came to my table and said, hey, do you mind if I sit here and, and eat my lunch with you because there's no other tables? I said, sure, absolutely. And so we began talking, and he began kind of sharing what his life has looked like over the past four years. And he said, you know, I haven't been home for four years because I've been stationed abroad in the army. And uh, I'm a really big fan of pizza, and I have not had a good, old-fashioned American pizza in four years. You have one guess what he had gotten for lunch that day. A nice, yeah, steak, a nice pizza all for himself. And he was so excited to eat this pizza for the first time in four years. I'm not exaggerating when I say he had tears filling his eyes he was so excited about this pizza. Like, picture Kevin McAllister in Home Alone with his own cheese pizza to himself. This was this guy. And he just, like, I was sitting there like, dude, you're really excited about that pizza. And so he lifts it to his, he just smells it. You can see the steam and the, the cheesiness. And so he pulls it up, and he takes a bite. And as he's chewing, his look of anticipation and excitement quickly turns to a look of disgust. And he goes, this is the grossest pizza I have ever eaten in my life. What a letdown after four years. Although it's kind of your own fault for getting airport pizza as your first one back. But nonetheless, why is it, why is it that the things we desire most consistently let us down? Like in life, maybe you've experienced that. Why is it that the things we desire most in life consistently let us down, at least eventually? Like maybe for you... You had your eye on the new iPhone for months and months and months. I don't really know many people that do that anymore, but maybe you've had your eye on the, the newest iPhone, and you get it, and it's got a couple cool new features, 
And then two months later, they release the next new one, and you're just kind of like, this isn't that exciting anymore. Because the things we desire eventually let us down. Or maybe for you it wasn't an iPhone, but maybe it was a new truck or a, a new car or a new boat. And you, you finally get it. And there's this season, this honeymoon period where it's incredible, but then it eventually just kind of loses its luster and, and lets you down. Maybe for you it's not a physical item. Maybe for you it was a new job. Like you went through a months and months and months long interview process. Felt like you went through 20 rounds of interviews to land your dream job only to realize it's nothing like what you thought it would be. They kind of fooled you a little bit in the process of interviewing. Or maybe for you it's more personal. Maybe you have a goal that you have set for yourself on the scale and you're going after this specific weight and you're losing and you're losing and you finally hit your goal weight and you still look in the mirror and you find stuff you don't like about yourself. Why is it the things that we desire consistently let us down? Here's why. Because the devil doesn't show up in our lives with red horns and a pitchfork. He shows up as everything you think you can't live without. Devil doesn't show up with red horns and a pitchfork. He shows up as everything you think you can't live without. And this was the problem from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, that the allure of sin is that you can take for yourself your deepest desires, and yet every single time it overpromises and it underdelivers. Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye. It was good for food and good to make one wise. And they wanted to be like God. And so they took it for themselves and it led to a place of destruction and death. Sin always does this. It overpromises and underdelivers. And like we talked about last week, the tension of the Old Testament from the moment in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, the central question, the central tension of the whole Old Testament becomes this. Who is it? Who is the one who will fulfill God's promise? Who is the one who will restore our relationship with the one we actually can't live without? Who will show up? Like the central question of the Old Testament becomes a question of who? Now, if you've sat through any of my sermons ever, you probably already know the answer to the who question. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus. That's the right Sunday school answer for every church question, right? But I want you to suspend this just for a second. Like, pretend you don't have the second part of the Bible. Or pretend you only have the first part, the Old Testament, nothing from Matthew on. If you're somebody reading these scriptures what you will begin to see is that the authors of the Old Testament are dropping hints and clues along the way as to who this person could be. And so there will be a person that will come up and it'll be, could it be this person that's the new Adam, the new Eve, the one who will restore a relationship? Could it be that person who will live rightly in the eyes of the Lord and walk in his ways and restore blessings to Israel and to the nations? Who is it? Who is this person? One of those people is Noah. Like, like, could it be Noah? And as you read the, the Noah story, you begin to see glimpses and hints of the Garden of Eden repeating itself once again. Like, if you look at the descriptions of the ark that God had called Noah to build, by the way, he was a righteous man living in a wicked world, and God calls him to build an Eden-like ark. It's very similar to the Garden of Eden in the descriptions of the ark and the dimensions and all of those things. 
And not only that, but Adam and Eve, who were called to rule over the beasts of the field, over the animals, what does Noah do? Who does he bring onto the ark? He brings animals, beasts of the field, every kind of animal. He is exercising, once again, dominion over the animals like God intended. But then the ark lands, and Noah steps off on a dry ground. And what does God charge Noah to do? The exact same thing he charged Adam and Eve to do in Genesis 1. Go into the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the animals. This is the charge that God gave to Noah, stepping off the ark. And, and so in this moment, if you're a reader of the Old Testament text, you're thinking to yourself, could Noah be it? Could Noah be the start of the new creation? Could he be the new Adam? And then what does Noah do with it? He gets drunk and naked in his, in his tent, and his son does unspeakable things to him. Not Noah. <laughs> and that pattern repeats itself throughout the Old Testament. Could it be Abram? Given a similar promise to Adam and Eve. Given a similar mandate to Adam and Eve. Nope, it's not Abram. He fails. Well, could it be, could it be David? Could it be David's family? God promised David that he would be like trees, that his line would be like trees planted in a garden, very much Eden language. And of course, David fails. And it's over and over again that you are given these hints that it could be this person and then they fail. Why do they do this? Is it to trick us? Is it to confuse us? No. It's actually to hold up a mirror to our lives and to say, here's how every single person in this story has fallen short of the glory of God who is a, in bondage and a slave to sin who is in need of someone greater than themselves. It is a mirror to hold up. And I want to look at one of the characters in the Old Testament today who is perhaps one of the best mirrors for us to hold up. He is actually one of the best candidates that the writers of the Old Testament talk about for being the new Adam. Who is this guy? Is David's son, Solomon. And so as David is aging, the prophet Nathan comes to him and he says this to David about his offspring in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, this is what Nathan says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so in other words, when you pass, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, so a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so when David's son Solomon comes on the scene, it's as if the Old Testament writers want us asking, is Solomon the one who will restore relationship for us with God? Is he the new Adam? Is he the new humanity? Is he the new Eve? It certainly appears so from the way Solomon is introduced. He's introduced as a man who loves God. That's how he's first introduced. Not many people that's said about in the Old Testament. He's a man who loves God. He encounters God at a great high place. You see, high places throughout the Old Testament were a place of testing and encounter with God. People either failed their Eden test at a high place or they succeeded in their Eden test at a high place. Abraham's calling to sacrifice his son was a high place moment. Adam and Eve going to take the tree, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was a high place moment. It is a place of great testing. And what happens to Solomon when he goes to a high place? He sacrifices a thousand burnt offerings to God. He succeeds in his high place test where Adam and Eve has failed. And what does God do in response? 
He appears to Solomon in a dream, and he says, whatever you want, I will give it to you. And what does Solomon ask for? You can shout out the answer if you know it. What does he ask for? Wisdom. But if you read the text in 1 Kings, more specifically than wisdom, it says, God, give me the ability to discern between good and evil. The exact same thing that Adam and Eve took for themselves. Solomon says, I'm not going to reach out and take that for myself. God, I want you to give that to me. God, I'm going to pull my hand back from the fruit of the tree, and I want you to give that to me. I want you to give me the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to discern between the two. I want to walk in your ways, God. I want to be a wise ruler. And what happens from this point forward is this beautiful picture of Eden replaying itself under Solomon's rule. I mean, just look at some of the descriptions of Solomon's rule in 1 Kings 4 here. This is what it says. It says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. This is a repeating of the the promise to Abram. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Reading on here. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. In other words, this is a picture of the new Eden under Solomon's reign. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. Solomon spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Are we seeing the language of Genesis 1 and 2, Garden of Eden stuff repeating itself under Solomon? And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. If you're reading this story up until this point, you're thinking to yourself, we did it. Eden has been restored. Eden is back. That not only is Solomon ruling the nations, exercising the same dominion he gave Adam and Eve, but he's building God's temple. Other nations are praising God. You literally have kings of other nations coming to Solomon and saying, hey, we want to help fund the temple to your God because we see the impact he is making. We did it. Congrats, Solomon. You are the new Adam. Trent, let's come on back up. We can worship and be done. Except the devil doesn't show up with red horns and a pitchfork. He shows up as everything we think we can't live without. And what the prophet Jeremiah is doing as he tells Solomon's story in 1 Kings is he is showing us that under the surface, under the veneer of the opulence and the wisdom and the beauty, there are cracks in Solomon's facade. There's cracks, there's weaknesses, there's sin issues. Like, who, is, who are the ones building this new Eden? Well, 1 Kings 5 tells us it's 30,000 slave laborers that are building this new Eden. And not only are they building this new Eden, but they are building storage cities as testaments to Solomon's wealth to hold his chariots and his horses. Who else used slave labor to build storage cities for their wealth? Pharaoh in Egypt. Not only that, but you read on. Let's give Solomon the benefit of the doubt, just in case. But let's read on. 1 Kings 10, you see Solomon accumulating incredible wealth. 
Like 1 Kings 10 tells us that in one year, he accumulated 666 talents of gold. Now, that might not mean a lot to you. If you know your Bible, 666 raises kind of a flag. That's not a great number. But I want to give you just an idea of how much wealth that was in gold that he earned in one year. A single talent of gold today would be worth about $1.4 million, which means that in one year, some of you are really good at math, a lot faster than me, Solomon accumulated just shy of a billion dollars in gold alone. A billion dollars in wealth accumulation in one year. Not to mention all of the silver he accumulated, all the horses and the chariots and the land. I mean, this dude was loaded, wealthy. And a lot of this wealth was a blessing from God. And so what does he make with this $1 billion in gold? He makes these pure gold shields weighing hundreds of pounds each. He, he covers his throne in ivory and over, he makes his throne out of ivory and overlays it with gold, with carved lions. He has a massive accumulation of silver. Solomon was the only king of Israel to have his own personal navy at his disposal. But he didn't have navy ships in order to fight other nations. He had navy ships to ship in more silver and more gold for himself. He is a king, the text tells us, that went to Egypt and got horses from Egypt and had them imported. And I mean, this man is a picture of wealth. So what is the problem? What are the cracks in the facade that Jeremiah the prophet is pointing out in this first king story? Well, let's look at one of the commands that God gave his people concerning their kings, that he gave Israel before they entered the promised land concerning their kings. In Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, it says this, only he, the king, or the future kings, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. What did Solomon acquire from Egypt? Horses. Next one here. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Well, he hasn't done that yet, at least. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive what? Silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is the why, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the Torah approved by the Levitical priests. In other words, what God wants the king of his people to be doing is to be meditating on the word of the Lord day and night over and over and over again, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord God, his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And then the last one here and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. It's as if Jeremiah, when he tells Solomon's story, is showing us that under the veneer of worshiping God are all of these different cracks and violations that Solomon is participating in, partaking in, leading God's people into that are a violation of who God wants them to be. Well, at least he hasn't married a bunch of other women yet, right? Well, let's look at the way Solomon's story ends. <laughs> I heard an uh-oh. 
There is an uh uh-oh. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. Who did Solomon love at the beginning of his story? It said he loved the Lord. The end of his story, now he loves many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And then the last one here, and his wives, what? Turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the father, as was the heart of his father, David. Do you see what's happening here? In Solomon's life, a life described as filled with love for the Lord. Love for the Lord evolves into love for self, evolves into love for foreign women, evolves into love for other gods. There is a slow fade, a chipping away at Solomon's life that is leading him away from God. And as I read this story, I find myself really frustrated. We did a lot of Bible work. We're going into really practical for the rest of the sermon here. But I find myself really frustrated that you have this complicated guy like Solomon who on one hand is painted as an incredible lover of God, while simultaneously, like mixed into his story, is also being painted as an incredible lover of himself. How do you reconcile those two things? That this king can be an incredible lover of God and an incredible lover of himself, how do you reconcile that? Well, ain't that the million-dollar question for American Christianity? You realize that's the same question the world is asking of the church? How do you reconcile churches filled with people who claim to love God but seem to love themselves just as much at the same time? You see, friends, idols rarely show up as golden statues or explicit Satanism or atheism. Satan's goal, if he can't get you to worship him, his goal, his goal in your life is to shift your affection, your attachments, and everything else, your attention away from God so that you can live a life that simultaneously says, I will worship God, but I can, I can essentially worship the throne of self at the same time. I can have more than one God at war for my heart. That there's room for more than one God to sit on the throne of my heart. For Solomon, it was a slow fade. His heart is being captivated by something alongside God. And by the way, these were blessings from God. God gave him wealth, and yet at the same time, these things are becoming an idol because they are at battle, at war for the throne of his heart. You see, idols are often neutral things that are given power by our response to them. My wife and I, we've been foster parents for eight, nine, something in their years. And uh, one of the things they teach you, and I know we have several foster families and several social workers actually in our church, which is really cool. I love that. Um, But one of the things that they teach you in kind of trauma-informed training, whether you're a foster parent or a social worker, is this idea that, that foster kids have very specific trauma triggers often. And so you can take something that's incredibly neutral on its surface, like a a spaghetti meal, for example. 
or a, a Beyonce song or a pair of pants. And because of some experience in that child's past that was traumatic, a plate of spaghetti is no longer just a plate of spaghetti. The smell and the taste and the appearance of it causes things to fire in the brain that give that neutral item power over that child. And it can be the most random of things. As a foster parent, you don't know going into a foster care case what specific trauma triggers are, and so they can take you off guard. And the same thing is true with idolatry. Oftentimes, the idols that we worship the most are neutral things on the surface. They're neither good nor bad on the surface, but we give them power because of our response to them. So if you want to identify where idols and attachments might be at play in your life, I would encourage you to use this statement right here. I don't know who I am without blank. I don't know who I am without blank. When the Old Testament talks about idols, it puts them into three main categories pretty consistently. And I think those three main categories are super relevant for us today. The first category is this, possessions. The Bible calls this mammon. The second main category that the Bible puts idols into in the Old Testament is power, influence. And then the third one is pleasure. And each and every one of those three things were at play in the downfall of Solomon's heart being led away from the person of God and from worshiping him and him alone. So what I want to do is just walk through these three. See if they're at play in some of our hearts and some of our lives and begin to expose them and invite the Holy Spirit to convict some of these things in our lives so that we can recenter our affections and attention and attachment onto the person of Jesus alone, who, by the way, spoiler alert, is the one who came to restore right relationship with the one we can't live without. And so uh, let's just go through some of these. First, possessions. If you think about Eve being tempted in the garden, she saw that the fruit was good for food and she took it. It is a possessive type response. Solomon, his obsession with possessions looked like hoarding for himself storage cities for his chariots and his horses, hoarding silver and gold. Do we think Solomon had a possessions problem? For us today, there is nothing wrong with having money. Nothing. There is something wrong when you have to check with your money before you can worship Jesus with it. There is nothing wrong with earning money. There is something wrong with living in perpetual anxiety at the thought of losing it, perpetual angst at the thought of not having enough of it. There's nothing wrong with having stuff, but there is something wrong with constant jealousy and comparison with others about not having enough stuff. See, the devil doesn't show up with red horns and a pitchfork. He shows up as everything we think we can't live without. And for some of us, stuff, whether we have it and we hoard it, whether we don't have enough of it and we're constantly living out of angst and not gratitude, our stuff, maybe that's it for you. I don't know who I am without my stuff, without accumulating more. But maybe it's, not, maybe it's not possessions for you. Maybe for you, it looks a lot more like power. You say, well, I don't, I don't have a power problem. Well, Eve 
she saw that the fruit was good to make her wise, and she wanted to become like God, so she took it. This is a power move, a power grab, putting herself in the place of God. Solomon, then his power is exercised through his 30,000 slaves that he had power over and his desire to build his own empire. We may not exert power the same way. I'm guessing none of us have 30,000 slaves at our disposal. But do you have a need for control in your life? Do you have a need to control the narrative about what people think about you? Do you have a need to constantly defend yourself when false accusations are made against you? Do you have a need to always be right or to project an image online? For some of us, and I'll just, I'll just ask this question here, have any of us felt frustration about COVID or COVID policy or COVID loss over the last two years? Oh, come on. You're either saints or liars. Who has not had some level of frustration? I'm raising my hand. I think that's a universal feeling. There's nothing wrong with having frustration over that. But one of the things I've observed is I've seen people post four times a day online, I'm not going to let COVID control my life. I'm not going to let COVID control my life. And my, my response to that is, if that's all you're posting about, I hate to tell you, COVID's controlling your life pretty intensely. You see, there's a difference between being frustrated about something and being dominated by anger over it. It might be an idol. It might be an attachment in your life. Here's another one. We live in a culture that relentlessly runs to our tribes as a way to exert control over other people. Whether it's a racial tribe, a political tribe, whether it's a gender or sexual identity tribe, our tribes have become ways in which we try to exert influence and power and control over other people. Maybe that's it for you. Here's one you're gonna love. <laughs> Some of you wouldn't know who you are without your guns. And some of you might be thinking, how dare you say that, Pastor? That's my God-given right. To which I would say, and Solomon's blessings were God-given blessings. Again, it's a neutral item. By the way, I love guns. I own one. I have a uh, Red Ryder BB gun, so it's sort of a gun. Uh, but I do want more, and I love shooting them. Nothing against that. That's not the point I'm making. But here's, here's where this can become an idol in our lives, and I believe that it has for some of us. If there is an item in your life that has become an ultimate source of protection for you that is not God, like an ultimate source, that might be an idol. Whether it's a gun or a mask or a vaccine, again, inherently neutral items, but if those become your ultimate source of protection and preservation, that might be an idol for you. Here's the last one for power. Some of us have real, legitimate, severe wounds that we grew up with. Maybe we grew up in an abusive household. Maybe we were neglected by our parents. And so we've spent time healing from that. But what's happened is that wounding has become just a drive for success, a drive to perform, a drive to succeed. And so we've replaced one idol, dysfunctional idol, wounding, 
with another idol, a more functional idol, a drive to succeed and say, I'm not going to let my past dictate. I'm going to have control over my own life. That is just a more functional idol, but it is not bringing that wound to the person of Jesus and allowing him to actually meet the longing and heal it. It's still an idol. Are we seeing how idolatry is so subtle? Satan doesn't show up in our lives with red horns and a pitchfork, but as everything we think we can't live without. And then I want to go through the last one here, which is pleasure. Eve saw the fruit was delightful to the eyes, pleasurable, and so she grabbed it and she took it. Solomon saw foreign women with foreign gods and took 700 wives and 300 mistresses, 1,000 women at this man's disposal for sex. Do we think homeboy had a pleasure problem? Yeah. And it's easy for us to sit back in judgment and say, really, Solomon, a thousand women at your disposal? Lest we forget that many of us have millions of women at our disposal for sex on Pornhub. That over 24 billion hits a year of people just consuming other people for sex. You know that Pornhub alone has 12,500 gigabytes of data uploaded to it every minute? Every minute. That's enough to fill every cell phone in the entire world and then some every year. And not only that, but the, the, the practice of Pornhub is so mixed in with sex trafficking that they themselves have admitted that they can barely separate the two out, that consent and uh, domination and abuse are so mixed in with each other. And so it's easy for us to sit, and, and I, I'm not saying this from a place of shame. I have had my own struggles with pornography. I've talked about those. What I'm saying is some of us, some of us are taking good longings that God has placed in us, and we are finding false fulfillment in a place that that makes pleasure the ultimate God or at least a competing God in our life. That we can worship God on one hand and we can also have pleasure, short-term arousal at the expense of long-term wholeness at the same time. And the invitation of God is you have room for one God on the throne of your heart. One, maybe pleasure for you isn't porn or, or sexual pleasure. Maybe it's just feelings. Maybe you are dominated and controlled by your feelings. And so maybe you avoid pain at all costs, and it's cost you deeply in your relationships. Maybe you're driven by anger. Maybe you're driven by just what feels good at any given moment, the pleasure principle. And so that is what controls how often you're spending time with God, what your worship life looks like. And so feelings are what dominate your life. Maybe for you, it's image and fitness that you have a picture of your ideal self and you will not stop until you reach that point and it's never enough and it's never enough and it's never enough. The devil shows up as everything you think you can't live without. What is the thing for you? Like if you were to put your finger on it, what is the thing for you that God is convicting you over in this moment? If it's some version of money and stuff, I just tell you, that will let you down. Like if money and stuff is what's competing for God for your heart, you'll never have enough of it. You'll never have enough of it. And you'll live in constant resentment and jealousy and comparison to those you perceive to have more than you. You'll never settle in gratitude. If, if it's power, 
or the ability to control your own life, then any threat to your personal freedom or your personal liberty is justification to wage a civil war on your neighbor. So it can't be that either. If your idol is worshiping image or pleasure or the way you feel, then when age and time start showing, when your feelings betray you, you will die a thousand deaths before they actually put you in the ground. What I'm trying to show you here is from the beginning when we said, why is it that everything we desire has a tendency to let us down? Because they were never created to do that. They were never created to compete for the throne of our hearts. And if you look at Solomon's story, like I could sugarcoat it and say, hey, here's the happy ending. It's a really devastating, sobering ending to his story. In fact, this is what it says in 1 Kings 11. This is kind of the end of Solomon's story. God speaks to Solomon, and this is what he says in verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. In other words, what God is saying is, Solomon, you want to have a divided heart? You get a divided kingdom as a result of that. That you want to have divided affections? This is where it always leads. This is a devastating story. But friends, it does not have to be your story. It does not have to be my story. Like some of us are living in the consequences of our idols right now. We show up to this place broken and longing. Some of us are living in the consequences of other idols, other people's idols. Like we're showing up to this place wounded and hurting and experiencing loss and devastation. And others of us, we're not yet living in the consequences of our idols. Like we're getting by okay with competing gods in our life. We haven't really experienced the devastation of that yet. And I just say to you that whether you're experiencing the consequences of your idols or you're not, the promise of God is they always lead to the same place. Emptiness, lack of fulfillment, and separation from him. Like That's where attachments in our life always lead. And so we don't become, or we don't overcome idolatry by just trying harder or putting our head down and doing the work more. We don't overcome an addiction to something like pornography by just withdrawing and trying harder. Believe me, that is not how you overcome it. I am living proof of that. You do not overcome it by just trying harder. You overcome it by turning, to, turning the object of your worship to someone else. That's the person of Jesus. See, if the devil shows up as everything we think we can't live without, Jesus is the opposite of that. He is the one who can fully meet the longings of every human heart. Amen. He is the source of permanent wholeness, not temporary satisfaction. I want to um, invite the band back up as we close, which I'm not sure where they are at the moment. Hey, they're waiting right up there. Hey, band. Uh, I want to just uh, invite the band back up, and I just want to share a little bit of, of my own story around this. Um, because pastors struggle with heart attachments too. So this last year, um, let, me, let me figure out where I want to start this. <laughs> One of the tendencies that I have in my life is to put my identity, like a lot of my identity, in the one or two things that are going really well in my life while neglecting the other parts that maybe aren't going as well. 
This is just another form of idolatry. So for me this last year, man, the church has been going really well. Like things about the church, we expanded our space and our church has been growing and finances have been good and all of these things about the church have been going really well. So it has been easy to make an idol out of the church and that has certainly been my temptation over this last year. But it has been also really easy to neglect my own personal and physical health at the same exact time. So even this last year in COVID, I gained like 60 pounds which there's not anything wrong inherently with gaining or losing weight, right? It's, a, it's kind of a neutral thing. But for me, what God really convicted me on, I happened to be in the shower. I don't know why I shared that detail. That was weird. But sometimes he speaks in the shower, okay? So I was in the shower, and he, this was towards the end of this past year. He just said, you know what? Like, you've neglected some really important parts of your life at the expense of others, you found it easy to put your identity in the things that are going well, and when you put your identity in things that are going well, that's just an idol. But what he said to me in that moment is, I'm not calling you to just find better balance over all the areas of your life. We're not called to just find better balance between all of our idols. He said, no, Brad, I'm calling you to once again recenter me as the focus of your life. So that everything you do and everything you are and every avenue that you are called to flows out of centering yourself around who I am. Because if you're just looking for better balance in your life between the different areas and spheres and places of influence that you have, you're just balancing idols with each other. The, the calling of Jesus and the way that he actually meets our heart's deepest longings is by making him the absolute center and everything else flowing out of that. If that's not him for you, if, if he's not your ultimate source of protection, if he's not your ultimate identity, if he's not your ultimate allegiance, you're just another picture of Solomon. You can look good on the outside. You can look like you're worshiping God. You can look like everything's put together, but underneath the facade, the cracks of the foundation are crumbling. And so I want to invite you this morning to just practice a couple things going into this week. I mean, there's a couple really practical things that each of us can put into practice that help us recenter God as the one person who has the throne of our heart. The first one is this. Do you have agenda-free time with God? Is there time in your week regularly where you are coming to God and you are saying, God, this is the tension that is in my heart right now. This is the anxiety. This is the angst. This is the anger. And I lay it down at your feet. Do you have time with God where you're just listening for his voice? God, I don't have anything to say. I just want to hear you speak. If you're not hearing God speak, this is one of the best places to go to hear God speak. Agenda-free time with Jesus. I don't want anything from you, God. I'm not coming to you for prosperity. I'm not coming to you to, to meet some need. I, God, I'm just coming to you because I am your child and there is value in being with you. And you are the object of my affection and my attention and my devotion. That's number one. Number two, are you in a community of people that loves you enough to call out the idols in your life? I have a group of pastors that I meet with on Wednesday mornings. I've known these guys for decades. 
And they are people that there are no masks with for me, that I can just say, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I'm navigating, this is what I'm going through, and let's just talk about it. Community in the church is a beautiful thing to getting rid of our idols. And then the last one, and perhaps this is the first step for some of us. Have you repented of them? Have you repented of the attachments, the strongholds on your heart? See, true repentance isn't, God, I'm sorry I got caught, or God, I'm sorry I'm experiencing the consequences of my idols. True repentance is, Jesus, I am sorry I hurt you. I am sorry that I have turned my affections and my attention elsewhere. And repentance is turning it back to the person of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do right now. As we respond in worship this morning, I want to just invite you to take this and treat this as a time of repentance. To say, God, there are a million things in my life vying for my worship and my attention right now, but I am recentering myself on you this morning and you alone. This afternoon, we're afternoon. So let me pray and then we're going to worship. Jesus, thank you for who you are. And Jesus, thank you that in a world obsessed with possessions and power and pleasure, that you actually gave up those things. You came and you lived the perfect life, the life Noah couldn't live, the life Adam and Eve couldn't live, the life Solomon couldn't live, or Abram or Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah, the life none of us could live. And you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking on the very form and function of a slave. Why? <laughs> so that we could be restored with the one our heart truly needs. God, may our lives reflect that reality, that hope, that truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Go ahead and stand as we respond in worship. <laughs>